The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian, investigative nutritionist, on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today I am delighted to bring our listeners Dr. Mary Ellen Sanders. She holds a Ph.D. in food microbiology, is the executive director of International Scientific Association for Probiotics and Prebiotics, and is a consultant in the dairy and food culture technologies area. Mary Ellen, welcome. Thank you so much, Melinda. Well, I first heard you speak probably through the American Dietetic Association, possibly a webinar. We were trying to figure out where our paths first crossed. But when I look for experts in probiotics and food microbiology, your name rises right to the top. Tell me something. How did you first discover food microbiology? Why did you major in that? I know it's not the type of career you grow up as a little kid thinking that you're going to get into. My career path hasn't been so typical, but when I was in college, I really was pretty aimless. I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do. I knew I was interested in the sciences, but I didn't know what. And at the time, uh, my older brother was at Fresno State, and he was doing a program in viticulture and enology, which is making wine. And he came to visit me one day in college, and he said, you know, Mary Ellen, he goes, why don't you make the cheese and I'll make the wine? And and it was that prompting that got me to check out the Department of Food Science at the University of California at Davis, and I just fell in love with the microbiology component of that, and in terms of fermented foods, and the microorganisms that are actually doing good things for us as opposed to all the press you hear about the microbes that can cause disease and other problems. And so it's a strange path, but that's kind of where I was. Well, that's a great story. And you bring up a really great point, which is we are so antibacterial in this country, and yet we leave out of the discussion all of these critical bacteria in our lives that really A month or week doesn't go by that I don't get some new information in my nutrition listservs about the power of probiotics, whether it's diabetes, Crohn's disease, mental health. You'll discuss all of this, I'm sure. But they do seem to have a unique role in protecting our health. So let's start out with a simple question, which is, what are probiotics? Well, probiotics are live microorganisms that when we consume, or you can actually administer them in different ways, so there are opportunities for having them like on the skin or used um, directly in the vaginal tract. But what a probiotic is, is once it's a, when it's administered, it can have a beneficial effect on health. And there are two components of that definition that are important. One, the organism needs to be alive. The microorganism is alive when administered. And secondly, you need to know that it's, been tested and shown to have some benefit. So there's lots of live microorganisms out there, and some of them can be presumed to be good for you, but we try to reserve the term probiotic for ones that have actually been tested in human studies and shown to have a benefit. It's interesting to me that the microorganisms are live, and they're able to pass through the hydrochloric acid, Mm -hmm. that acidic environment in our stomach, 
and then go on through to the intestines where they remain active. How do they survive that acidic environment? Well, different organisms can survive at different rates, and so some microorganisms are more sensitive than others. And what often happens is that you actually do lose some of the organisms to, or some of them will die as they're traveling through the stomach and the, and the also harsh environment of the upper small intestine. So the pancreatic enzymes and the bile can also be very harsh for them. And you may lose 50% or 80%, 90% of the organisms may die, but the important thing is, is that you get an adequate number of them that do manage to survive, and it's a bit of a numbers game, and they survive, and then they can go on to have additional opportunity to have an impact on the small intestine as well as in the colon, and even ultimately into the vaginal tract if they're targeted for that too. Now, there are many probiotics out there. There are different organisms that we see on product labels. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming that there are specific probiotics that have specific functions. Do we want to talk about those? Well, sure. I mean, people are interested in probiotics only in that they have the the potential to confer certain health benefits. And so I think it's really important that we discuss a few of those today. Now, probiotics, as you mentioned, there are many different kinds of organisms that are used as probiotics. So I think it's one important take-home point for listeners is that they're just not all the same. So we might call them a general term of probiotics, but underneath that umbrella, there's a variety of different genera and species and even strains of species that have been shown to have effects. And it's hard sometimes for consumers to realize that a different strain of a bacterium or a different strain of a probiotic may, in fact, be different enough from another one that the health effects that it could confer are different, too. And the analogy I like to use is different breeds of dogs. So dogs are all the same genus and species, but different breeds can be very different from each other. And you can have a dog that's good at hunting or you can have a dog that's good at being a guard dog. And they're going to have different strengths and different characteristics that make them appropriate for a particular job that you have for them to do. And I think of probiotic strains as something similar to that. And so when we look at the genus, and species and strain, we need to recognize that all that information is important in identifying what specific probiotic we're looking at. Let's talk about some specific situations where someone might want to use a probiotic. So, for example, diarrhea. I've seen good data supporting the benefits (laughs) of probiotics for preventing or treating diarrhea. True or false? Well, yes, and that, of course, is one big area. I think When you look at the literature base for probiotics, their effects on GI function and GI disturbances in particular is probably the largest body of research that's out there. But of course, when you talk about diarrhea, it can be caused by many, many different things. And so let's break that down a little bit to to talk about some of the effects that we know some probiotics have been shown to have. So one area that they've been tested in is in the area of antibiotic-associated diarrhea. And there's fairly robust literature out there that some of the strains of probiotics can actually um, help prevent the onset of of antibiotic-associated diarrhea or help make it not quite as severe for people. And that's a very important benefit because people, if you know, it's very it's very important for people to take the whole course of their antibiotics once they're once they've started taking them. And if they run into side effects, you run the risk that people might stop taking them because of negative side effects. 
And so if we can get those side effects to be more manageable, um, which in some cases probiotics can do, you know, that's a very important benefit. So antibiotic-associated diarrhea is one, and there are some studies that show that a very important and particularly menacing type of diarrhea, which is caused by Clostridium difficile, that probiotics can actually um, help decrease the incidence of Clostridium difficile um, diarrhea as well, which is associated for the most part with people who take antibiotics. So that's an important one. But the other aspect of diarrhea, you can have an acute infectious diarrhea, and probiotics have also been shown to decrease the duration of acute infectious diarrhea, especially in pediatric populations. And so that's a benefit that's been studied quite a bit as well. Now, is there a specific genus and species that is particular to alleviating diarrhea? I would say no, because what we've seen is that a a spectrum of probiotics have been shown to be effective in some of these cases. So one probiotic that has been shown is actually a yeast, a Saccharomyces, a particular strain of a Saccharomyces cerevisiae, and that has been shown to be effective with antibiotic-associated diarrhea. But in addition, you have certain lactobacillus species that have been shown to be associated with decreasing um, antibiotic-associated diarrhea. So we really can't just say one specific type of probiotic is necessarily the one you have to go to for these specific indications. Well, that's really good news, I think, that, you know, you're going to get the benefit over a wide range of probiotics. Let's get more specific now with regard to diarrhea and GI upset, and that would be talking about Crohn's disease. What does the data look like on that particular condition? Well, Crohn's disease is one of a family of diseases called inflammatory bowel disease, and actually the data on Crohn's disease is not strong at all. Mm. There have been a variety of studies that have been conducted in Crohn's disease with different probiotics, and they really have not been effective. Now, where probiotics have been shown to be effective within the family of inflammatory bowel diseases is with increasing remission time for ulcerative colitis and also for a condition known as pouchitis, When people have a type of colonic disease, sometimes they actually have to have their colon removed. And what ends up being done is a particular surgical pouch is formed, and that particular pouch is now kind of turned into a functional colon where the fecal material can reside, and it has a tendency to get inflamed and infected. And so in that particular case, which is a very narrow case, of course, you know, we're not talking about something that's in the general population. Right. But probiotics have also been shown to be effective there. But we don't have good data right now that that suggests that probiotics are effective with Crohn's disease. Inflammation seems to be rather ubiquitous, though. And we have many inflammatory responses going on in our body. Do we find that probiotics can be helpful in reducing inflammatory responses outside of the gut? That's a great question. I know within the gut they have been associated with that. To the extent that the anti-inflammatory activities have been documented outside the gut, I'm not sure about that. But you bring up a really good point, which is we tend to focus on the gut as the site for probiotics. But in fact, because the gut is an organ that is involved in communicating so readily with different parts of the body, including the brain and the immune system and other organs in the body, probiotics have the potential to impact areas outside the gut 
even though they may be restricted physically to the gut. And I think that that's a really interesting area that's going to develop quite a bit in, over the next few years. Yeah, I mean, just looking at our guts differently in terms of thinking about them as an organ that communicates with other organs in the body, that in itself is such a fascinating concept. And I think it was about a year ago I heard an interview on Science Friday where there was a researcher interviewed about the brain-gut communication processes yeah. and how how our microbiome or the, the organisms that live within our gut can influence how we feel. Mm-hmm. So that's an area of great interest and potential. Yeah, and there's actually been a couple of preliminary studies to look at whether or not certain probiotics can be fed and have an impact on different types of signaling molecules that are produced in the gut by the colonizing microbiota and ultimately have an impact on things like anxiety and other kinds of mood disorders. They're very preliminary, but the mechanistic basis is there for that, and that's just a fascinating area. Yes, and I believe you were a co-author on a paper that described how probiotics are working, they're having an impact, but oh, not how we might be thinking, and that led (laughs) to the whole genetic component, and that really does seem to be where much of the nutrition research is headed. You know, it is. And this whole field of, of understanding the colonizing microbiota through the Human Microbiome Project, which there's been so much being communicated recently, I mean, that's just so important because people now are really realizing that the microbes that colonize our body are really important to our health and development and our immune system functioning. And they're important from the point of birth on, and we just can't ignore them any longer. We have to kind of embrace the role that they play and they have this symbiotic relationship with us as human beings, and those functions really make a difference in our health. And, of course, the whole concept of pro and prebiotics is built on that foundation that, yes, microbes are very important to our health, and they're important to our health in ways beyond just being pathogens, the few that are. And the idea of pro and prebiotics is, is can we intervene with the current status of these microbes that colonize our body and promote them to be more healthful or promote, you know, less likelihood of getting disease down the road. Mm -hmm. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Dr. Mary Ellen Sanders. She holds a Ph.D. in food microbiology. She is the executive director of the International Scientific Association for Probiotics and Prebiotics, and she is a consultant for the dairy and food culture technologies industry. And she is a wealth of information when it comes to probiotics. Now, you mentioned a word, prebiotics. What are those exactly? A prebiotic is actually a substance, typically a carbohydrate, and I will just differentiate that because a probiotic is a live microorganism, but a prebiotic is a substance, a food ingredient that's typically a carbohydrate, but what's unique about a prebiotic is that it's designed to not be digested by the human digestive system and make it into the colon intact so that it can be consumed by the beneficial bacteria that are normally present in your colon. So on the one hand, we have a probiotic where you're actually adding a microorganism that's beneficial to health in its own regard. With the concept of prebiotic, you're adding a food 
that the beneficial microbes that are going to be part of your normal colonizing flora are able to consume, and therefore you can increase their populations and increase their, their functions. I'm sure many of our listeners are probably wondering, okay, this sounds like something I should be consuming. Is it better to consume pro and prebiotics via food, or is it better to take a supplement? <laughs> I always love that question when a dietitian asks. <laughs> I know. I do have a bias, don't I? <laughs> because we know where your, your preference lies. That's right. Um, you know, the short answer to that question is, is that in terms of probiotics, it really is more important to be taking the right probiotic that's matched for the reason that you're taking the probiotic as opposed to whether or not you're worried about it being in a food or being in a supplement. So, for example, if you have a specific concern about antibiotic-associated diarrhea, find the probiotic that has been studied and shown to be the most effective for that, and then if that happens to be commercially available as a supplement only, then go ahead and use it. I wouldn't not take it just because it's a supplement. And the same thing would hold true with a food product. If you're looking, for example, for improving your gut regularity, and that happens to be a probiotic that's delivered through a yogurt, and you can include that yogurt as part of a healthy diet, then there you go. You should go ahead and use that. So I try not to differentiate too much in terms of the nature of how these are delivered because I think the more important issue is what's the strength of the science behind the benefit. Mm -hmm. And what about doses? I mean, it's so difficult to, as a consumer, going to the grocery store, going to your health food store, and trying to figure out you're looking at a whole list of different possible probiotics you could possibly take. And then on top of that, you've got a range of doses. How does a person make a wise decision? It's tough, and I'm going to reiterate the answer to the previous question, which is the most important thing is what's the science behind the particular dose that's being offered. Sure. So what I recommend is that it's not as important to find the product out there that's got the absolute highest dose. It's more important to find the product that has been shown to have the benefits, and then the product needs to be matched in terms of its dose to the studies that have shown the benefit. So, for example, if a particular product has been shown to help manage the symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome and it was studied at, let's say, 1 billion or 10 to the ninth CFU per day, I would rather see someone who is concerned about you know, mild IBS symptoms going with that product than choosing a different product that might be 10 times greater in dose. Mm-hmm because at least I know that the particular strains and the product that's been tested has been shown to have an effect at that level, and that to me is what's more important. Now, where can consumers go to find these kinds of relationships? <laughs> you know, it's really not easy for consumers in the probiotic field because there's not a lot of head-to-head comparative information out there that consumers can go to and just say, well, this product was better than this one for this particular indication, or these particular products have been tested for these indications and shown to be beneficial. And there are a few published guidelines, and I don't know if it's possible, Melinda, to make these URLs available associated with this program, but the World Gastroenterology Organization, for example, has published a guideline on use of probiotics and prebiotics, for that matter, in GI indications. 
and that's actually a document that can be downloaded off their website. And in fact, if you go to worldgastroenterologyorganization.org, you can probably search for probiotics and see and find that document. But, but it is difficult, and unfortunately, I think you have to just be a savvy consumer and probably just make some phone calls to the manufacturers of the products and find out what kind of data are there and how their products are formulated relative to the data that exists. Yeah, I agree. And I think that with so much new research coming out, and there's always a new product on the shelf, that the best advice is for consumers to go to a respected authority, as you mentioned, the world, is it the Gastroenterology Association or organization? It's the, it's the World Gastroenterology Organization. Okay. So that's a good resource. Going to the manufacturer, I always recommend that as well. And then I have to say that I really like the Consumer Guide for Making Smart Choices that was developed by the International Scientific Association for Probiotics and Prebiotics. I think there is some really good, concise information on there that, you know, it's just a good go-to document. And Yes, and that organization is the one that I'm the executive director of, and, and I'm I'm proud of that document as well. I think that it does a good job of just specifying the details that the consumers need to be aware of. And just so consumers know, or your listeners know, the website is www.isapp.net. And on that home page of that website, you can download on the left-hand side, there's a, there's a link to the consumer guides for both probiotics and prebiotics. And it's just a one-page handout that just identifies some of the concerns that people need to be aware of when they're purchasing these products. But unfortunately, unlike the WGO document, our one-page sheet does not really list any specific products. It really is just a general information guide, whereas the WGO document does try to identify specific strains and specific products that those strains can be found in. Now, the downside to the WGO document, though, is that it's identified for global audiences, so there's going to be products that are listed there that are not available in the United States. Sure. One thing that we can recommend to consumers has to do with just some good, safe handling techniques. So, for example, proper storage conditions. And I always recommend that consumers check expiration dates as well because, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's my understanding that as a yogurt, for example, gets older, gets closer to its expiration date and beyond, there probably may not be as many active microorganisms in the product anymore. That's correct. The organisms can die over time. And and yogurt is an acidic product. And even though the organisms may have been selected to be able to resist the acid and survive pretty well in its presence, over time they will die. And that's certainly the case of supplements as well, that they have a certain limited shelf life and the numbers will drop off beyond the shelf life. So I think you just consumers need to look specifically at the manufacturer's recommendations and stick with that. Marilyn, is there anybody out there who should not be consuming probiotics? That's a great question. I think it's important for consumers to realize that probiotics that are on the market in the U.S. today are almost all in the forms of foods and dietary supplements. And as you know, foods and dietary supplements are marketed for the general population. And so if a consumer is interested in using one of these products for the dietary support of some kind of a medical condition that that goes beyond just what someone in the general population might have, I think it's a good idea for them to consult their physician or healthcare provider just to make sure that there's no problem with doing that. In addition, there have been general requirements that people who are critically ill 
or people who are immunosuppressed should not use probiotics unless they're under the care of a physician who's specifically telling them to do that. Have there been other areas of research that have gotten you pretty excited over the past few years in terms of probiotics being helpful to individuals with certain diseases? Well, I think really the biggest area for me um, to get excited about are the ones that you touched on already, the whole gut-brain association and how microbes are going to ultimately be able to have an impact on certain types of mood disorders or or anxiety or managing stress, issues like that, um, I think is going to be very exciting. Right now, we know that microbes can play a role. What we don't know is if microbes can really intervene in a robust way to help control those. I think other areas, again, where the research on the human microbiome is starting to show, you know, an important relationship with microbes and health is in the area, for example, of of obesity and diabetes and other types of metabolic disorders. And what we know is that people with those conditions have a microbiota that is different than healthy controls. Hmm. What we don't know is if we can intervene to change that microbiota and ultimately then change the health parameters of the people with those conditions. And, of course, probiotics and prebiotics are important potential intervention agents if, in fact, we can develop that relationship and show that 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 can occur. So I think, in my opinion, those are some of the most exciting areas of of the future. And the best places to find food sources are going to be fermented dairy products, such as, I'm thinking, yogurt, maybe some kefir. Any other fermented foods fall into those probiotics? Yeah, you know, it's it's an unfortunate reality in, in the modern grocery store that so many of the fermented foods, you know, pickles and sauerkraut and, um, you know, even, well, I guess you can't blame sausages for that because those are often heated and so the microorganisms are dead anyway. Right. But, you know, they used to be really rich sources of, of fermenting microorganisms, but with modern processing and, you know, manufacturers trying to make sure they have a consistent product that has a consistent shelf life and doesn't run into any quality problems, the microbes are often either filtered out or are somehow controlled in, a, in another fashion. Well, wine and beers are that way for that matter as well. So really the one big category of fermented foods where the microbes remain alive and active is in the fermented dairy products. And so you have cheeses and kefirs and yogurts that can be a rich source of live microorganisms. And you can also have sort of small cottage industry type products like kimchi or homemade sauerkraut or, uh, you know, types of fermented foods like that that could also be rich sources the sour dills in delis, for example, I've been told, you know, retain a large number of live microorganisms in them, but those aren't the kind you're going to buy in the in the jar at the grocery store. You know, the food sources are a little bit more limited now than they would have been, let's say, 50, 60 years ago when, when foods weren't processed quite as much as they are today. We're going to um, have to leave but our... I, I do want to remind people, though, that when... They need to keep in mind that there's a bit of a differentiation between fermented foods that have a a high number of live microorganisms compared to a a probiotic, which could be one of those live microorganisms, but it is specifically tested and shown to have health benefits. 
Mary so, Ellen, we're going to have to end our conversation. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. Our time is up, but I wanted to thank you so much for being my guest. You've given us incredibly wonderful information to go forth with. And we have been speaking to Dr. Mary Ellen Sanders. She holds a Ph.D. in food microbiology. She is the executive director of the International Scientific Association for Probiotics and Prebiotics, and she is a consultant for the dairy and food culture technologies industries. I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is Produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri by Dan Hemmelgarn. I want to thank our listeners and thank Dr. Sanders so much for being my guest.